Well, as a way into our text today, uh, I thought I would point out uh, something that I think is true of pretty much all human beings. It's kind of a quirky thing, but as you think about, you know, human beings the world over, there's something that uh, is, is, I think, true of everyone, something you see all over the world, and, and that is this. Uh, human beings seem to really enjoy making very small versions of very big things. Okay, think about the amount of people who love scale models. Think about how many cities. In fact, every major city has at some point decided they needed a scale model of their city. Why? Because uh, it's cool to look at, because it helps with planning. Here's a couple of examples. Uh, New York uh, hosted the World's Fair in 1964 and decided we need not just for everyone to be in New York, but to show a scale model of New York. And here's what it looks like. They still have it uh, in a museum in Queens. Uh, it's, it's kind of a cool thing, a compelling thing to see these miniature, you know, scale models of all the buildings. Every single building is there at that time. If you go to Jerusalem, uh, there is apparently a scale model of ancient Jerusalem, which is, I think, pretty interesting to think this is what it would have been like at the time of Jesus. You can see the Temple Mount and all the areas surrounding it. Miniatures are somehow just very interesting and fascinating for us. Uh, I'm not sure if you've been to Miniature World in Victoria, but it's a, a highly rated tourist attraction. My family went there, and it's really cool. You just go from room to room, and there's just these small little versions of these different scenes throughout history. Uh, here's uh, France, and we're, uh, sort of a battle scene depicted. They have fairy tales. They have all sorts of things, but there's something about something big that's very small that you can examine in detail that's compelling. My personal uh, favorite example, something close to my heart, is a toy from the 1980s called Micro Machines. Did anyone have these toys? They were so great. They're so tiny, so small. There's something about having a Ford Mustang just this big that you could play with that uh, I just found captivating. And I think that's true. All over the world, people tend to make these scale models. And in fact, uh, that is what we have today. We get the gospel in miniature. The gospel is a massive, the biggest truth about who God is and about who we are, about the transcendent grace of God, the glory of God. It's this, it's this massive thing that we find throughout the Bible, and yet, here in our text, it is, it is expressed in one sentence, like a scaled-down, fully rendered version of, of the gospel. And what this will allow us to do is, just like any scale model, is that we can see the, the complexity of it in, in a smaller scale. We can see how the parts fit together. And really what we're looking to do is to see how we can live in light of the gospel, to understand it more and see its impact on our lives. So I'm going to read our passage. Uh, it contains more than just the gospel, but it's in there. And I want you to kind of listen and try to figure out, okay, where is that little mini gospel? But really it's Paul who's writing this letter to Timothy, talking about his life and really about the impact that the, the good news of Jesus has had on it. So, uh, I'd invite you to read along or listen. Uh, I'm going to begin in verse 12. This is, again, Paul writing to Timothy. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, 
As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's God's word to us this morning. And maybe you heard in there, uh, verse 15 is where we find the gospel in miniature. We're going to begin there, uh, but uh, there'll be three points essentially today, all having to do with the gospel. First, uh, gospel truth, then gospel life, and then gospel display. So number one, gospel truth is, is essentially what we find in verse 15, that Jesus came to save sinners. I'll look at it uh, here again. Uh, Paul gives a bit of an intro. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That was basically a way of saying, hey church, uh, this is an essential doctrinal truth. If you have a bumper sticker, put this on the bumper sticker, on your cart, on your wagon. If you have a mug, put it, put it there, crochet it. This is something that everyone should know. This is an essential truth of what it means to be a Christian. So full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He takes the infinite grandeur of the gospel and shrinks it down to kind of a bite-sized chunk. And so we're going to treat it at first like a scale model. Look at there's three main components here which really articulate the essence of the gospel. Number one, uh, Christ Jesus, it begins. He is the active agent of the gospel. The good news of God to the world comes in the form of Jesus himself. God the Son, come down, to live as a human being. That's, that's the next part. He came into the world. That's the incarnation. That Jesus was born of a virgin and right away this sets uh, this God apart from all the other would-be gods. For in all the other religions of the world, God is at a distance giving some wisdom or some instruction, some commandments and says, you got to do this. You got to figure it out. But the Christian God is the only one who says, I'm, I'm coming to you. I see that you need help. You can't do it on your own. And so Jesus came. Jesus came to live as we live in human flesh so that he might do what we couldn't do for ourselves, which is the third part. He, he came to save us. Here pointing to the cross. Jesus saved us by dying for us, by giving his life as a ransom for many. Here within this short sentence, we have everything we really need to know about who God is and about who we are and how he has bridged the gap. This really is the heart of Christianity. In fact, everything in all that the church has done points to this very thing. And as you read through the Bible, you will see it over and over and over again. In the Old Testament, anticipating the coming of Jesus. The New Testament, revealing his coming and then reflecting on it. Just as, a, just as kind of a little snapshot of how often we see this in the Bible, uh, here are, are four verses, uh, beginning with, the uh, angel speaking to Joseph in the Christmas story, uh, telling that, look, Mary is going to have a son. Here's, here's what the angel says. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's why he's coming. That's his, his main purpose. We know right away before he even arrives on the scene. Then when Jesus, just before he's baptized by John the Baptist, John 1.29, it says the next day uh, he, that's John, saw Jesus coming toward him and John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He knew already that was why he was here. That was his purpose. In Matthew 9.13, Jesus himself says, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. That was who he came to connect with and help. Those who realized 
that they were sinners in need of help. And Romans 10.9 says very clearly, look, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the essential and eternal truth, the gospel truth that God intends for every human being to know on the planet. It is majestic and grand and yet also something that we can state in a single sentence and that we should wrestle with. See, there are a lot of problems in the world, a lot of problems in our lives. Every single person on the planet probably has uh, a different or a variety of answers in terms of like, what would make things better? What would, if, if you could do anything, what would help you right now or your community or your nation? There's a whole lot of problems. Yet what we see from God is that there is one essential problem, and that is that humanity is in sin. We have turned our backs on God. We've disobeyed him. We've gone our own way. And the effect of that sin is now displayed in the brokenness of the world. And the truth is that apart from God's work in our lives, we don't understand this essential problem. We don't understand that this is the the thing that is needed. And when God opens our eyes, when we come to the point of conversion, of faith, we finally see God and ourselves as we truly are. We, We see that we are indeed full of sin that we are lost, that we are under the condemnation of sin, and that God is full of grace. God is full of mercy and full of love. And this is, in fact, what we see in Paul. Right? Paul gives us the gospel miniature right in the middle, but he kind of sandwiches it uh, with, a, with an account of his own life, of kind of what has happened to him as he's come to understand the gospel and then lived in light of it. So the gospel truth, Jesus came to save sinners. He did a lot of other things, but that was the essential thing that he did, the main thing. But what then is a gospel life? What do we see in the life of Paul and how should we live in light of it? So our second thing, what we see in a gospel life is an increasing awareness of sin and grace. Look back to the beginning of our passage, verse 12. Paul begins, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, Paul was an apostle. Paul was a church leader. But he's not here just saying, look, Jesus, thanks so much for, you know, picking me. This has really been fun. I'm really glad that you chose me to be an apostle. What he's really saying is, Jesus, I can't believe you picked me. Like, of all the people, why, why would you pick me? And because he's writing to a church that he sort of knows, but, but many would not have known his story, he, he tells some of his story. He tells them what he was like. Verse 13, he says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, that means someone who dishonors God with your words, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. See, Paul began his life as Saul. If you know the story, you know that he was a high-level Jewish religious leader, and you know that, that he was committed to stamping out the very beginnings of the church. This was right after Jesus had gone to the cross, been put in the tomb, resurrected, and then ascended to heaven, and he had left his followers to go and spread the good news message. And as they began to teach about Jesus, Paul in particular, and many in the Jewish faith said, this is heresy, this is wrong. This is not right, we need to stop this. And so Paul, he began a campaign, a violent 
and committed campaign to stamp out the very beginnings of the church. Here's, here's what Paul says about himself in the book of Acts, Acts 26. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Just think about the description of, of that kind of guy. Right? He was actively involved in tearing apart families, putting people in jail, putting people to death because they simply named the name of Jesus. And what you see here is that he wasn't just content with with dealing with what was going on in Jerusalem, he went to foreign cities, which tells you a lot about his determination. In fact, he was converted on a road to Damascus, which is seven days away. So imagine being part of the early church at the time, right? You've heard, man, there's persecution going on in Jerusalem, but man, we're a week's journey away. We've got to be safe here. That guy Paul that everyone had heard about, he's not going to come here. And yet Paul would ride on a donkey for seven days just to come into a town, kick in some doors, drag some people out, and have them either imprisoned or put to death. That, that was who he was. That was the level of his hatred. But what we see in Paul is that though the church at the time considered him to probably to be like an unstoppable force, he had the authority of the church, he had the approval of Rome, who was going to stop this guy from bringing anger and persecution? And it turned out, that it actually was fairly easy to stop him if your name was Jesus. For everyone else, not so easy. But Jesus just appeared to him. He falls on his knees. Look at Acts 9. And falling to the ground, Paul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now that's an amazing moment of conversion. But it also gives us some insight uh, there's a verse in our text today that can be a little confusing. Uh, verse 13, where Paul says, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Uh, at first, it seems like what Paul is saying is, is Jesus looked at him and said, Man, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. This guy's, t- I mean, he's totally a mess. I'm just going to give him a second chance. Right? I'm not going to condemn him in his sin. He doesn't know what he's doing. So I should be kind to him. Um, that's not the way the law works. That's not the way any law works. Uh, Ezra was here last week, guest uh, preacher, and he made that really clear, right? Traffic laws, uh, ignorance is no excuse to break those laws. You don't get a buy just because you didn't, you didn't see the posted speed limit. You're still guilty of that crime. And, and the same is true for the law of God. That even though Paul, and we see there, he didn't really know what was going on. When Jesus appears to him, he's like, who are you? He doesn't, he doesn't know, and yet, and yet that doesn't excuse his sin. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying, you know, Jesus just gave me a buy, gave me a pass. What he's saying is that Jesus looked at me and he had pity for me. He had mercy on me. He saw how very, very lost that I was. That I had, for all of my supposed wisdom, all of my conviction, all, all of that was only further leading me down a road of lostness and sin and destruction. And Jesus, in grace, he had, he had mercy on me. And it strikes me that, you know, we don't often think of ourselves as, as lost in this way. It's not that often 
especially if our, if our lives are somewhat together, that we have a real sense of how lost we are apart from God. But there's a conversation I had a, a few weeks ago that, that just kind of gave me a, a picture of this, kind of a heartbreaking picture of it. Um, uh, about a month ago, I spent uh, a bunch of time in the emergency room. We don't need to get into why. Again, let's just say there's an injury. And so I, I was there for a few hours. And while I was there, I had, a, I had a big book. I was just ready to read. You know, I knew it would take a little while. And uh, there was a young uh, woman who sat beside me. Uh, she's kind of rough looking, kind of agitated. And so she started uh, just talking to me as I was, you know, trying to ignore everyone. Um, as a good pastor does. And so... Uh, she started talking to me, asked me about my book, and so I, you know, heard what was going on in her life. Turns out she was there because her brother had almost OD'd uh, on meth. And so she was there, he was in there, he was still unconscious, she was kind of waiting. Uh, her, her family had come down, uh, his girlfriend and her boyfriend, they're all just kind of milling around, and, and she was just, she just seemed like she needed to talk. She just kept sort of talking, uh, but she started talking about her life, and uh, and she started, you know, saying, man, those, those drugs, those are, those are bad drugs. She said, you know, that, that's why I don't do meth very often anymore, she said. I was like, oh, really? She's like, yeah, I just, I know that that could happen. I mean, I do it sometimes, but not that often. And, and you know, I just, I try not to party too hard, she said. I, I said, well, like, what do you mean? She said, well, I said, like, drinks. And she said, yeah, yeah, I, I drink alcohol, I do weed and that sort of thing, but you have to be careful. That's what she was saying. And I was like, yeah, I I guess so. She started to talk to me about her life. I asked her, you know, are you, are you working now? No. No. She said, I'm not really into that. I said, are you like going to school? No. She said, kind of laughed that off. I asked if she'd, you know, been to church or prayed much. She kind of shrugged, shrugged that off. What she began to tell me though, is this life that she has and these, these guys that she's been dating. And, and, and what I just kept thinking of is like every marker of, of sort of a risky dangerous life is a life that she was admitting to unashamedly. She had no sense that, that there was a way in which she could end up in the emergency room. Some, some little glimmer that, man, if you do those bad drugs, but the whole rest of her life, she felt like they, it, was, it was fine. And my heart just kind of broke. And I, and I thought, man, no one has taught this girl the first thing about, about healthy choices, about risky behavior. And, and certainly, obviously, no one has taught her how much she needs help from God. And, and as I begin to, I mean, trying to think about how I'm going to talk to her, she, she had to go. And, and the family left. Her, her brother, thankfully, had, had woken up. But I just, there's just a pit in my heart and, and thinking, man, she just doesn't know. She's lost. And the other thing that came to my mind, reflecting on this passage, is look, it, man, that level of lostness is, is more easy to see. But there are so many of us living our put-together lives that think we're fine, and yet it's the same level of spiritual lostness. It's the same level of, of blindness to the things that are ultimately going to destroy us. And what Paul is, is saying is that by the grace of God, his eyes were opened. That, that Jesus didn't just give him a pass, didn't just be like, okay, well, don't worry about it, you know, Saul, Paul, everything will be fine. He, he spoke the gospel truth to him. He said, look again in Acts 9, 4, and 5. He confronted him in, in a sin. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, you're not, you're not acting in what way is right. You're not honoring the true God of the universe. And then it wasn't condemnation. It wasn't, you know, heaping. You got to do better. Saul, it was grace. This is what, this is, as Paul tells the story, 
Uh, in verse 14, he says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is the essence of the gospel, that there is an overabundant source of grace. No matter how much sin is in your life, no matter how lost you are, there is always grace that is sufficient to pay for that. Now, the interesting thing, though, is that this awareness of sin and grace for Paul, it was not a momentary thing. So you might not have noticed it, but it's really interesting. As Paul gave us the gospel in miniature, he applied it personally right after, and the verb tense is a present verb tense. So look back to verb, uh, verse 15. He says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, which is weird because you would have expected him to say, I was the foremost, right? That was me. And knowing his life, we would say, yeah, prob probably you were, Paul. But that's not what he says. He says, right now, I am. I, Paul, the apostle, the, the, the church planter, the guy who basically established the church in the known world, I right now am the foremost sinner. And you'd say, Paul, how does that make sense? I mean, isn't he sinning less? He, he is, right? He's not murdering anyone anymore. He's not putting people in jail. He's not trying to destroy the church. He's trying to build up the church. So how do we understand this? How, how, how can he say, he says it two times, like he's the foremost sinner still. How do we understand this? Well, the way we understand it is, is to understand that a gospel life is one that begins with an understanding of our sin and the grace of God. But it's also a life that continues to grow in our understanding of our sin and the grace of God. This is something that we sometimes miss. We know that to come to Jesus, we need to, you know, okay, I, I get it, I, I need you. But then very often we forget that that, that actually is something that, that grows in us. And if you're a visual learner, you're going to like this next part because I came across a diagram in a book uh, called The Gospel-Centered Life by Bob Thune and Will Walker. Uh, if you're not a visual learner, just close your eyes and just listen. It'll be just as good. So they give this diagram to kind of give a picture of the gospel life. What would it look like if you actually lived in light of the gospel truths? And so they kind of paint the picture this way. They say, okay, imagine that you're living your life and you come to the point of conversion. That's the point where your, your eyes are open like Paul and you see, man, I really do need Jesus. I really need to trust in him for my salvation. From that point... They say what, what actually happens in our lives is two things simultaneously. One, we grow in our awareness of the holiness of God. As we read the Bible, as, we, as we're in prayer, as we gather with the church, we come to realize in new and fresh ways, man, God is really amazing. God is perfect. God is beautiful. We come to understand Jesus more. He's so gracious and loving and powerful. We see him work in our lives and, and are just... Our view of God gets higher and higher and higher. But at the same time, because of the work of the Spirit in our lives, our own sin becomes clearer and clearer. And so we have an increasing awareness of, man, I'm not as fantastic as I thought I was. At the beginning, we know that. To come to faith, you need to know that you're a sinner, but we usually have a pretty small version of the extent of that sin. Yeah, I know that the, I'm sort of greedy in this way or I'm selfish somewhat. Like There's some things I need to take care of, clearly. And yet we don't realize the depth of our sin until we have the Spirit of God working in us. 
And what happens over the years is that God seems so much higher, more beautiful, and really, if we think about who we really are, we realize how far apart we are. Now, if you were to, I mean, if you're new to the church, if you're wondering if this is, you know, a good thing, you might look at that and say, that does not seem like a very enjoyable life. Because what you're telling me is God is promising that as I grow, I'm just going to realize how horrible I am with increasing detail. Like that does not sound very encouraging or, or fun, right? Every day, what, what's next, Lord? What did I not see? Oh, good. I'm that horrible in that way. But, but that's not all that happens, right? The, the, the thing of it is, that gap that we see with greater and greater clarity is not left open. It's filled, it's filled by the grace of God. In fact, that's what Paul says, right? As he's explaining this, essentially what he's saying, I was horrible, God is great. Then he, the verse 14 fills in the gap. He says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And what actually happens as you live the gospel life is that you see the cross of Jesus in increasing size and wonder and majesty, right? Because you, you realize, man, I... I didn't really know how, how impatient I was until God brought me into this situation, until I had children, perhaps, right? And you realize, I'm not patient at all, <laughs> right? So what do you do? You go back to Jesus. I, I need forgiveness for this. I need you to, to help me to grow, and there's grace there. You realize, man, Jesus even died for that. Jesus even was forgiving for this. And, and your understanding of God's grace and love, it expands and grows and fills you in a way that it didn't at the beginning, this is a beautiful, this is an intended life that Jesus wants for us to live. It's what, it's what Paul is doing. But here's the thing. We, we actually often work to minimize the cross. Very often our life doesn't look like, like that. It, it looks like this. And here's how this happens. This happens for, for two main ways. Number one, we very often know we're sinners, kind of, like we know there's some bad things, but we do a lot of pretending. We spend a lot of time excusing our sin, e even after we've come to faith. Right? Just think of any time, pretty much, that anyone has sort of brought, you know, one of your areas of weakness to you. What is our natural response? Very rarely is it, oh, I'm so glad you told me that. I, I was waiting. I, I knew there's an area of blindness. I didn't know what it was. It was, thank you so much. No, usually we're like, well, what about, you know, that's maybe, but look, what about you? Right? If, if you weren't acting this way, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so impatient. Or very often we talk about the good things we did. Yeah, yeah, that wasn't good, but you're totally forgetting all the good things I did last week. Look, I've got them, you know, an index card. I laminated it for you because I thought you might ask. Here you go. Look, I did this and this and this. We tend to minimize our sin by comparing, by making excuses, by pointing to the good things we've done, we do it naturally, we do it effortlessly. We even do it when the Spirit of God himself is, is like leaning something on our heart. There's not even, you know, like a person in front of us. It's God himself who is convicting us over something and we ignore it, we excuse it. We find ways to explain away our sin and what happens is that then the cross of Jesus shrinks. Because if our sin isn't that bad, what, I mean, why did he really need to die? I mean, he know he needed to die for us to get into heaven, but that, you know, it, it's very small. On the other side, we tend to perform. We tend to find ways to perform so that we would 
earn the approval and accolades from those around us and from God himself. Um, this, is, this is finding a way to earn a righteousness that is not from Jesus. And there's a very easy uh, question you could ask yourself. If you're wondering, well, what, what exactly does that mean? Like, how would, I, how would I find some other righteousness that's not from Christ? The, the question is this, what do you count on to give you a sense of personal credibility? Like, what is it in your life that you look to? I mean, you know intellectually, maybe if you're Christian, in some way, look, really, it's Jesus. Jesus did it all for me. But in your day-to-day living, where do, you, where do you get a sense of peace and rest? Is it because you're the hardest worker? Like, do you get a lot of validation from the fact that you come in early and you stay late? Is it because you're, you're usually the smartest person in the room? When there's a meeting, you got the best ideas, you got the wittiest comments, you have a real sense of validation and approval because people look to you in that way. Is it because you're a good mom? Or is it because you do good things for others and you tend to make good decisions with your life? You look back on your life and say, man, it, it, other people did this and that, but look where I am because of my wise choices. Do you live a moral life? Are you disciplined and self-controlled? You'll notice that all these things are good things. Like the things that should be true of our lives. But the problem comes in when we take these, these good things and we make it the center of our identity. See, when we do that, a couple of things happen. Number one, we, we tend to exhaust ourselves because we need to always keep being the smartest and the hardest working and the best mom and all these things. Or we crush, we get crushed when that doesn't work out when things fall apart, when we make a mistake, when we aren't able to do the the thing that usually makes us feel good. And the other thing that happens is, is again, the cross becomes small. Because why did we really need Jesus? Like if we're able to do all these things on our own, then then what did he do for me? What, What did he gift me at the cross when I came to faith that was so important? See, if you really think about the way that Paul describes his life and the gospel, it, it's not this at all, right? Paul puts the highlight and the focus not on what he's done, but on what Jesus has done for him. He really has, has the other life. Think about Paul's life. Does the cross of Jesus not loom large in his life? I mean, it's not just everything that he says, it's how he lives. He, he's intentionally putting on display what Jesus has done. And in that, he has an absolute peace that cannot be shaken. This actually, we see him say uh, pretty pretty clearly. He says it very candidly in verse 16. This is our third point, uh, by the way. A gospel display. He's displaying the gospel of Jesus for the glory of God. Uh, Look in verse 16. He says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner, right, uh, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul's saying, look, part of the reason Jesus did this was so that if people were wondering, like, what's Jesus like? What's, what's God like? This God of the universe, this, this God that has been prophesied and that these, these Christians are talking about, what is he like? They can look at Paul and say, well, we know he's really patient. At the very least, we know he's so patient. Look at this man who for all his life opposed God. 
committed grievous sins, and yet Jesus waited for the right time where he could reveal himself, change his life, and honor God through the saving of a desperate sinner. See, Paul's life, he, he recognizes part of the reason that I've been saved is to display the gospel. And so the question that this raises for us, especially those of us who, who know the Lord, is what is on display in our lives. That the, what's being sort of assumed here is that our lives are displaying something. That in the way that we live, what we say, what we talk about, that something is being communicated. What is it for us? What do we intentionally or unintentionally, just in our reactions, put the spotlight on? Is it our accomplishments? Is it the things that we've done? Is it how wise we are? Or is it on what God has done in us and through us and for us? Does the cross really loom large in our lives? Or do we end up making it look kind of small? See, it's one thing to understand the gospel. It's another thing, key thing to accept it, to understand it's it's personally for you. But it's still a third thing to live a life in light of it. One where it it is able to, to radiate and impact the lives of people around us. And don't for a minute think that what this means is that we need to be like Paul, right? It doesn't mean we need to go overseas necessarily. Maybe if God calls us, it doesn't mean we need to plant churches in this way or proclaim and preach. That's what Paul was called to. The principle is what opportunities do we have as the church, as individuals? See, really it comes down very often to the way that we treat the people around us. Like how we treat our family, how we react at work when we're embarrassed because we totally make a blunder of things? Do we rage and rail and blame or do we just humbly accept it? What do our kids see in us when things go horribly wrong? How do we treat others who have offended us? And, and what do we celebrate? Like what you see in Paul here at the end is that this is a man who can't help but celebrate God himself. Like he's jazzed. He's excited. If you think about him writing this, right? Remember, he's writing to the church about how to do church well, how to deal with false doctrine. He kind of has taken a bit of a sidestep to just talk about his own life. Look, here's, here's good doctrine. This is the gospel. This is what should happen. But he can't help but write verse 17. As he's thinking about his life, verse 17, he just says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's such a grand thing, even though it's in miniature, he can't help, he overflows with praise and worship. He's excited about what God is doing. He's most excited about that. See, Jesus came to save sinners. This is what happens when a sinner gets saved. This is what the life looks like when a sinner gets saved. And the truth of the matter is that this is what has always been happening over and over and over again throughout all of history. Person after person, lost, desperate, alone, angry, has been captured and captivated by the grace of God and and changed to the point that they're almost unrecognizable. I have one other story for you of a man a lot like Paul. Uh, His name name was uh, Tokichi Ishii. He lived in Japan in the early 1900s. 
This man was a hardened criminal. As I read his life story, he was basically in and out of prison from, from a very young age. 20 times he was imprisoned for all manner of crimes, violent assault, robbery. When he was in prison, he was aggressive and violent towards the guards. He had to be put in solitary confinement. He was a man who was raging against the world around him and thought nothing of hurting the people around him to get what he wanted. In 1918, he was uh, finally convicted of murder. He was sentenced to be hanged. And in between the time that he was sentenced and the hanging itself, uh, a couple of missionaries, two missionary women, uh, one named Miss West, another one Miss McDonald, they sent him a Japanese New Testament. And Tokichi Ishii, he, he read the New Testament. He came to faith in prison. They went to meet with him. He started corresponding and they, they discipled him a, a number of times. When he went to the gallows, Tokichi Ishii was a different man. He stood on those gallows not filled with rage and fury, but with humility, accepting the consequences of his crimes. And here are the last words that he spoke. With the noose around his neck, he said, My soul purified today returns to the city of God. How does that happen? How is it that he could say that his soul was purified after all he'd done because of the grace of God? How could he know that he has a hope to be with, with God, this perfect holy God, because of the grace of God? See, the beauty of the gospel is that time and again, we're able to see who God truly is. Not a, a God of condemnation, just the, the law and the judge. There is that. But more than that, a gracious, loving, merciful God. A God that changes lives. Last week, Ezra, who was here, shared the gospel at length. It was wonderful to just to hear it preached that way. And, and he said to those who had not yet accepted Christ, he said, why not today? Today is as good a day as any to come to the point of seeing your need for Jesus. And do you know that last week there was someone who, who did accept Jesus? Praise God. A young man named Malcolm who'd been with us for a while. God opened his eyes fully and completely to see, I, I need you, Jesus. This week was a week where Malcolm was growing spiritually because of what God had done in his life. It's the same work that God is doing in all who have come to faith. See, this is, this is what the Bible is all about. This is, if you're wondering, why are we even here? Why did Jesus come? It's, it's to save sinners because we needed saving. See, in truth, the gospel is really not a small thing, Right? I mean, it, it's massive. You, you, you spend years, you spend your whole life mining the depths of this wonderful truth, and yet, and yet it's also something that can be expressed in a sentence. I'm going to end with it again. Verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Praise God that he did. My hope is that if you don't yet know him as Savior and Lord, that you would accept him today. It's still as good a day as any. And that if you know him, that you would, you would expect to grow in your understanding of God's holiness, your sin, and to allow the cross to loom large in your life for your benefit and for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for, for the story of, of Saul turned into Paul. So thankful because it makes 
so very clear the, the extent, the magnitude of your grace that there is no one alive on the planet. There, there has never been anyone alive on the planet who has too much sin for you to redeem and forgive. I pray that that would just greatly encourage us. I pray for anyone here feeling as if they are too far from the Lord. I pray that this would remind us of the extent of your grace, that it is overflowing. Like Niagara Falls, there is no end. It just keeps pouring out on us. And I pray, Lord, for, for you to work in the lives of those who don't yet know you as Savior and Lord. I pray for that young girl that I met in the ER. God, I don't know where she is, but God, I pray that in your sovereign grace, you would reveal yourself to her, that she would come to faith. She would see that her essential issue is, is one of spiritual lostness. God, that she would, she would come to know you as Savior and Lord. And I pray the same for anyone here who does not yet have that relationship, that saving relationship with you, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would also help us, those of us who know you in that way, to not minimize the cross, not pretend in any area of sin and not perform and try to, try to make up the slack, but that we would rely on you first and foremost. And from that, from that, we would live lives to honor you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the gospel truth. Thank you for your transforming power. I pray that we would rejoice in it now as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.